Thank you. Pam, is it? Pam, yeah. I love that accent. Maybe it's because my name's Glasgow, I don't know. Well, I'm looking at people. And I'm just so looking forward to getting to know more and more of you over these next uh, few months. Let us pray and ask God to open his word to our hearts and minds and uh, reveal himself afresh to us this morning. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you that you are the living, eternal God, but your spirit has been given to us and has come in order to open your word and make it living and personal and powerful to our hearts. So may that be true this morning as we look into your word into the words of Jesus and the, uh, the record that John wrote uh, of the time when Jesus was here on earth living among us. We thank you for your word and pray that this morning we will be open, willing to not just listen and hear, but also willing to apply your word to our lives. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Us defeated is what I've entitled this chapter. Uh, when Marg and I were preparing to leave after six years being in the United States, working at a church there in Carmel, Indiana, uh, some of our closest friends uh, at the church and a neighbor and so on uh, joined with us in a meal at a restaurant where we just said goodbye. It was it, The hour had come, the time had come for us to leave. And so we wanted to have a meal and in that meal share with those friends and say our, our goodbyes, which was great, um, but because we knew that we'd be coming back and we had planned to go back last year and this year, but uh, maybe next year we might be able to go back um, because of the COVID thing uh, happened straight after our, when we left. So... We knew we'd see them again. We were sad, but we weren't that sad because we knew we'd be going back, not realising that we'd be held up. Um, but we're still looking forward to that time when Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room and had a meal with them. He was doing the same thing. He was saying goodbye. He was saying he was preparing them for his departure. And in so doing, he, in this chapter, wants to warn them to prepare them for the reality of what they're going to face. It's going to be dark days, not just the dark days that immediately followed this dinner, uh, this meal together, but uh, where Jesus was crucified, but the dark days that would continue on after that. And so he says in the first uh, couple of verses uh, that the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Hey, these disciples are kills us? I mean, we're following Jesus and they'll find out that he's going to be crucified. They couldn't understand it when he told them many times, but he, they didn't get it that the Messiah would be crucified. But then us, we too, dark days uh, accompanied them following the departure of Jesus. He wanted to forewarn them. And so he said he's doing this in verse 1 to keep them from falling away. He prepared them for the truth of what was going to happen so that when it did happen, they didn't say, oh, wow, this is not what I signed up for. I'm out of here. Uh, he, he warned them so they would stay true despite 
the dark days that they would go through. These same men would face horrific deaths, every one of them except for John. Peter was crucified upside down. James was beheaded. Bartholomew was flayed alive. And we could go through them all. And then the Christians in the early church, as we know in the first century, they were fed to lions for sport. They killed an animal and put the animal, tied the animal's um, skin to individuals so that the wild animals would then attack them because they could smell the blood. They would uh, put pitch on them and hang them up and set them alight so that they could be lights uh, for, for the emperor in his uh, gardens or whatever. Terrible things that happened. They were burned at the stake. And down through history, even today in Afghanistan and other countries, Christians are persecuted. Dark days. And the prospect of these dark days filled the disciples with consternation, concern, worry, fear. But Jesus assures them in this chapter that dark days will be transformed into light. In various ways, he's going to show them that even though this, their hearts will be filled with sorrow, it's to their advantage that he's going away and he's going to change that, transform that sorrow into joy. At the end of the chapter, he finishes up the last words he says to them before they go out and he prays and then goes to the cross was that the world, he says, let me read it to you, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So then, Jesus said, if I go, it's your, to your advantage. Uh, there is a, a real advantage in my going. And the first is that dark days will be transformed by the light of the Spirit of God who he would send. And that's what he says in verse 7, If I do not go away, the Helper uh, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's saying that the Comforter is the word, or actually the word is the one who comes alongside to help. I like that. That's actually what the Greek means. The Spirit of God in your life and in mine, if you're a true believer and have invited Christ to come into your life, the Spirit of God is the one who comes alongside to help, walking with you through your day, through your week, through your dark days. Just as Jesus walked beside them, and they had a problem, they'd go to Jesus. He was their helper. Now Jesus was going, he said, I'm sending another helper of the same kind. My wife loves novels, historical novels. She has some favorites like Bodhi Taney. When she reads a novel and it's cheesy, she skim reads to the end. She doesn't put it down. She skim reads. But when she finds a really good novel, uh, she wants to find another of the same kind. Not a different one. It's still in the genre of being a novel, but it's this author or something like that so that she can read more of the kind of novel she loves to read. And so God, the Lord Jesus, says, I'm sending a another 
helper, a comforter of the same kind. He is sent to do two things. First of all, to illuminate the world. I will send him, Jesus says, to you, and he will convict the world. I'll send him to you, and he will convict the world. I'll send him to you, not to the world. I'll send him to you, and he will convict the world. In other words, there's a bridge between you and the world. You've got to tell the world. The Spirit of God will do the conviction, but you are the one who receives the Spirit, and the world is the one that will come under conviction. This is the only place in the Bible where uh, there's teaching on the Spirit of God and its relationship, his relationship to the world. The primary fulfillment of this, that he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment, the primary fulfillment was on the day of Pentecost when they stood up filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaimed the truth of Jesus, the risen son of the living God, and 3,000 put their faith in Christ. They were convicted of their sin of righteousness and judgment and they put their faith in Christ. A few days later, 5,000. And so the church exploded because the Spirit of God in them brought conviction through their speaking the gospel. He convicts the world of three things, sin. You see, they only saw sin as breaking God's law. They never realized that by rejecting the son of the living God and crucifying him was the ultimate sin. It was the, if you like, the, the uh, sin above that, that encapsulated all sins because you see, Jesus is the Son of God and sin is rebellion against God. So if you rebel against God in flesh, that is sin, the sin, the ultimate sin. The Bible says that when they heard about Christ risen from the dead and that he died for their sins, in the gospel on, on the day of Pentecost, it says they were cut to their hearts and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Conviction. Sin, but also righteousness. Uh, their idea of righteousness was self-exalting, that they were proud keepers of the law. Remember, the apostle Paul was a Pharisee before he came to faith. And it says, as far as the law is concerned, he was blameless. He, no one could point the finger at him and say, you have broken God's law. And yet he, he regarded all his righteousness, so-called, as trash, as rubbish to throw out in the bin. For the sake of knowing and having Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. The Bible says, none is righteous, no, not one. And so we stand before him and the people on the day of Pentecost and ever since stand before him and our righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and thirdly, of judgment. You see, their belief then, and probably now uh, among some, but Back then it was very strong. Their belief was that when Messiah comes, 
he would judge the Gentiles. Oh, he'd get rid of those filthy dogs. You know, that's what they call them, us, if we're Gentiles. They were the ones that God's going to condemn and, and, and he's going to deal with them. Jesus says no. His coming was not for judgment. He came to save the world, not to judge the world. Remember and back in chapter 1 of John? Or chapter 3? His only judgment in this first coming was to judge Satan, to deal with Satan, to destroy his power to take from Satan, to defeat Satan, the authority of the prince of the power of the air was stripped from him at the cross and the resurrection. That's the only judgment in his first coming. Oh, when he returns, he's going to judge the world. He's going to judge the nations and there's going to be the great white throne that every individual who has ever lived outside of Christ will stand before that judgment seat and he will condemn, he will show them that they have failed God's law and they will be cast, believe it or not, what the Bible teaches clearly into the lake of fire. Jesus spoke more of hell than he did of heaven. But it's not politically correct to talk about it, right? Oh, says Peter, let, at the day of Pentecost, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the Spirit of God was sent to illuminate the world and he did that through the apostles then and through us today as we share the gospel and with the gospel, it's, the word means good news, but the good news that Jesus died for us is only to be seen in the, uh, with the backdrop of the condemning, uh, the, the, the sense of our utter helplessness because of our sin and because of our guilt before God. When we are convicted of sin, righteousness and judgment, then we'll be really wanting to know what the good news is, that Jesus died for that sin, that he paid the death that we deserve on the cross for us. Amen? The second reason the Spirit of God was given, he was sent also to illuminate the disciples to convict the world, but to illuminate the disciples. The disciples had limitations, as we know, all through the life and ministry of Jesus for those three years. He taught them things that they just couldn't grasp, even the fact that he was going to die. And he says in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit would be the teacher on the inside. The word there is guide or to show the way like someone who's a tourist guide in the bus up the front with the microphone saying, if you look to your left, you'll see so-and-so or whatever. When we, when we did the two or three week uh, tour around Israel, we were led by Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who's a uh, an amazing guy, um, a, a, uh, 
Messianic Jew who has done two of his degrees of the three degrees he did were in the Jerusalem, uh, the Israel um, University, uh, and he got a theological degree in America. But anyway, uh, he spent with his wife many years, many years traveling purposefully around Israel, finding the spots where uh, events happened and, and getting it all together. And then when he takes a tour, it's, it's not a... Uh, Sort of a romantic thing, you know. Jesus walked up the Via Dolorosa. No, he didn't, says Arnold. You know, if you go down 20 feet, you'll come to the original land where the Villa Dolorosa is. When you get to the top of the hill, uh, when there's a crossroad there, then you'll see the paving, big stones there. They are put there by the Romans. That, that was the original road there, but not, not the Via Dolorosa where everyone walks up and says, wow, Jesus walked the street. No, he didn't. So he was like that. He was a guide who told the truth. He went to a mountain and said, this is where they say this happened, but actually it was that mountain over there. <laughs> it was very interesting, but it was very good. And the Spirit of God is like that. He'll get rid of wrong notions and ideas. He will lead us as we turn to God's Word and allow His Spirit to teach us. He will guide us into all truth so we know what to believe and what not to believe what the church has added to the scriptures or interpreted falsely. And the spirit of God is the spirit of truth, it says here. He is the spirit of truth who will guide us into all truth. So the spirit of God was sent to illuminate the disciples as well. He will glorify me, says Jesus. He will take what is mine and declare it to you as the Father had, has, all that the Father has is mine. So what the Spirit of God will do is take the words of Jesus, but I, the, what Jesus tells the, the Spirit of God to say, what he um, moves the Spirit of God to say, uh, as what it says here, will take what is mine and declare it to you. And that's really what the Father is saying. So really the, Spirit, the, the Trinity is all involved here in teaching us the way what to believe. All right, the dark days were transformed, first of all, by the, the light of the Spirit. But the dark days that they anticipated that Jesus warned them or prepared them for in these words were transformed or would be transformed by the light, secondly, of joy. Joy. Dark days. Joy. Verse 20, you will weep and lament. These are fishermen. These are big blokes, you know. They're strong. They're, they've got it together. You will weep and you'll lament. But the world will rejoice. They thought they had their way. Satan would think he's got it all together. Finally, he's dealt the blow that he needed and he ended up falling into that hole himself. The world will rejoice, but you will be sorrowful, but, another but, your sorrow will turn into joy. Your sorrow, where they weep and lament, will be turned into joy. The disciples were perplexed. They, um, they were asking themselves, what does it mean a little while and you will see me and a little while and you won't see me? 
And Jesus is basically saying the penny's going to drop one day. You'll see it. You're only a few days away. And you'll get it. But you don't see it now. First of all, he says uh, that the uh, light of joy will come because of his promise. Just what I read to you just before. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Um, he does not so say that your sorrow will be replaced by joy, but the very thing that causes sorrow will actually be turned into joy. The cross is what we glory in. Yet at the time, it was sorrowful to see the one they loved hung on a tree and, and, and spat on and, 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 and suffering such pain. Do you know, Jesus didn't take a, a panacea of any kind. Like when Mark had a baby, she was, um, I'm going to come to that. I'll tell you in a minute. <laughs> Jesus was offered vinegar to drink and he said no. He suffered and he didn't want anything to take away from, to minimise what he was there to do, to suffer and to die in our place. When it was all over and, and he, was, he gave up his spirit, he had a drink then, but it was all over. But in the middle of that time, he didn't drink to ease the pain. So the same event will bring joy as well as sorrow. And so it is today. Some of us today are going through times of great sorrow. And maybe there's an enigmas in your mind. You don't understand what's going on in your life or in your family or in, in your business or whatever it might be. And you're troubled. You might even be brought to tears. He knows our pain. He knew their pain. He anticipated their pain. He says, one day you will understand. Our sleepless nights. He will replace with joy. He will, in, he will bring joy in the midst of suffering. Joy is not dependent on what happens, good or bad. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, an evidence of God's dwelling within us. And it's an inner, un, it's very difficult to explain. It's just that sense of peace and joy in your heart, despite the tears. So Jesus uses the illustration of childbirth. And he says, so also... You have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And he talks about the illustration of, of a, a mum, a mother-to-be uh, uh, having a child and the sorrow and the pain that she goes through. Now, any mother watching or listening to this will know what that means. And my, my wife, when she had our first baby, Rebecca, um, she had blood pressure problems, so they weren't able to give her any epidural or anything like that. So she had to endure the whole pain of it. But, you know, she never talks about the pain now. In fact, this morning I asked her and 
She had to think. Um, like the joy of having the baby in your hands and all that happens after that is totally, it totally eclipses the pain, apparently. Not speaking from experience. And so Jesus says, the cross, which will be so painful for you to see me there and to know, uh, or not know, not understand, says one day, very soon, it's going to be eclipsed with joy. I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So the Lord's promise. Secondly, the Lord's provision. Um, not only uh, did he send the Spirit um, to comfort us and to help us, but to provide access to the Father directly, directly to the Father through prayer. And that's what it's saying here. Look at it, verse 23 and 24. In that day you will ask me nothing. Hey, Jesus is saying, you're not going to ask me anything. I'll read on. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be complete. I'm going, so you can't ask me. And I'm not sort of the intermediary. You can go straight in my name. In the name of Jesus, we go straight to the Father and bring our prayers, our petitions to him. He says, so it's to your advantage that I'm going away. The Lord's provision through prayer. They no longer need to ask Jesus, but go direct. In two weeks, um, I'm going to have a pause going through John's gospel, and we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer, so-called. It's actually the disciples' prayer in Matthew, where Jesus said, Our Father in heaven is the way you pray. Um, hallowed be thy name. And we all know or know of the, the Lord's Prayer as it's called, the disciples' prayer, I like to call it. And we're going to look at prayer. But here he's saying prayer is in my name. It's on my merits, Jesus said, and it's, in, it's to do with my mission. When you pray based on my merits of dying for you and rising again, being your saviour, and my mission to evangelise the world, to spread the gospel and to build up the church, the body of Christ to maturity. When you're praying in line with that, then he says, you have direct access to the Father and hears your prayers and answers your prayers and your joy will be full. Thirdly, the dark days are transformed by the light of peace. Right at the end of this chapter, he says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have Peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Peace, first of all, in grasping the truth. They had this new capacity now. Um, what were puzzling things would now become understandable to them by the Spirit. Uh, he, he says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. The Spirit of God would bring a sense of peace because the things that 
They didn't understand what they would grasp at last. Even grasp somewhat, you can't grasp everything fully. How would you understand that God is one God, essentially one God, but uh, he's three persons? Uh, that, we use little illustrations like uh, the, the colors of the rainbow. It's one light, but it, it's got three colors there and the ones that, where they merge, but three basic colors. So there's illustrations like that, you know, that help us to try and understand. There's things that, however, we'll never understand. But a lot of the things that they could not grasp about who Jesus was and why he came and the truth of the gospel is uh, after the Spirit of God came is something that they grasped more and more. And so the Spirit of God was given to do just that. And so when you come to the rest of the New Testament, the epistles, uh, the book of Acts written by Luke and then the epistles by Paul and James and Peter and John, uh, you find there uh, that the truths of Jesus that he taught were explained, were amplified, were developed were applied. There's nothing new. The Spirit of God just took what Jesus said and the truth of Jesus and then he amplified it. So the New Testament is the uh, record of that for us today. So it brings a sense of peace. Secondly, peace through the assurance of God's love. I, he says in verse 26, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. I'm not going to try and plead your cause to the Father, your cause to the Father. He loves you. You go direct to him. He loves you. You don't need me to plead your cause in prayer. Isn't that wonderful? He loves you. He loves me. And lastly, in this peace in abiding in Christ, their faith would be tested. Their, their hopes would vanish and their minds and their hearts would be in turmoil. Jesus said, you'll be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Even Peter, who thought he'd hung around, denied him with oaths and curses. They all forsook him and fled. Matthew records, and so does Mark, Jesus saying these words, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But Jesus says, Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Oh, I love that. Oh, yes, there was a time on the cross when he, for three hours he hung there and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, that he was bearing the sin of the world and, and God the Father turned his back on his son as he hung there on the cross is the best way I can understand it. But leading up to that time and after that time, he had the comfort and the help and the assurance and the love of his father. I am not alone, he says, for my father 
is with me. You can flee and fled. You can go away. You can leave me. You can forsake me. But my father will never do that. And do you know what? Today, sometimes people think everybody has turned their back on them and they've been rejected by everybody. They, they really feel isolated and alone. And if that's the case for you, look what Jesus says here. My father is with me. When you have Jesus as your saviour and God the father is your father, your Abba father, as we'll look at in the Lord's prayer, disciples' prayer. When you realise that, it will give you great encouragement. You are not alone. The peace will be real. In this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The Father will raise up his Son and exalt him. God has a guaranteed end. The world will not win. Jesus will win and did win and will win again. I like the words of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, which I'm going to read to you now, which is saying much the same thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, guarded in heaven, kept or guarded the word is in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded. So our inheritance is guarded in heaven and we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while it is necessary that you aggrieved with various trials. Peter was writing this to a church that was persecuted, that saw their kids killed, the parents killed taken away and, and never see them again. In this you rejoice, though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes with, uh, when tested with fire, may be found to result in praise and honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The last words of Jesus, I have overcome the world. He prayed and then went to the cross. When I sit in the mornings at home and have my quiet time, I sit in a seat that looks out our back window to Mount Dandenong. And this morning when I looked up, I often look up there and I... Think of the Lord. And when I looked up this morning, the, the sun was shining so bright. It was like a, rig, a round, huge round, white, uh, shimmering light, so intense, so glorious, and, and it's, the glow was so strong that I didn't see anything except a few trees in our yard that had shadows because of it. It was, it was just glorious. You know, other mornings I'm out there and I look up and I don't see anything past the trees because it's wet and wild or it's 
foggy. That glorious sun is still there. It's just hidden. Many days in our lives, there may be fog, clouds, rain, hail, wind like this last week. He's there. Rejoice. He will turn sorrow into joy. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, that through the dark days that we may have to go through, Lord, we thank you that we have you. That through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us, his resurrection and his glorious truth, and the truth of your word, we can have faith and trust and know the joy of the Lord, which is our strength in times of trouble. So help us, Lord, to look to you, to remember that even though we don't see you at times, we don't feel you near to us, you are there, you do love us, and you will never forsake us. We thank you for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.